The scripture reading today is from the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 17, verses 16 through 34. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was deeply distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he argued in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, and also in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Also, some Epicurean and Stoic philosophers debated with him. Some said, what does this babbler want to say? Others said, he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign divinities. This was because he was telling the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. So they took him and brought him to the Areopagus and asked him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? It sounds rather strange to us, so we would like to know what it means. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners living there would spend their time in nothing but telling or hearing something new. Then Paul stood in front of the Areopagus and said, Athenians, I see how extremely religious you are in every way. For as I went through the city and looked carefully at the objects of your worship, I found among them an altar with the inscription to an unknown God. What therefore you worship as an unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, he who is Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in shrines made by human hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mortals life and breath and all things. From one ancestor he made all nations to inhabit the whole earth, and he allotted the times of their existence and the boundaries of the places where they would live, so that they would search for God and perhaps grope for him and find him, though indeed he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your poets have said, for we too are his offspring. Since we are God's offspring, we ought not to think that the deity is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of mortals. While God has overlooked the times of human ignorance, now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will have the world judged in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. When they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some scoffed, but others said, we will hear you again about this. At that point, Paul left them, but some of them joined him and became believers, including Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. The word of the Lord. Let us pray. Gracious God, we gather here today and we come into this with all sorts of backgrounds, all sorts of beliefs, all sorts of um, emotional states. Some of us are exhausted. Some of us are excited. Some of us are hopeful. Some of us are depressed. Some of us are anxious. Some of us are calm. We, we're all of these all at once, it seems, in many days. And so we ask you now to meet us. We ask you to, to talk to us, to teach us, to, to visit us with your presence in such a way that it's palpable. Give us hearts that are open and ears that are open and a willingness to receive what you have for us today. Help us to know more than anything just how much you love each and every one of us. Give us grace to believe that more than anything we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Forty years. 
40 years. My high school class reunion is having a 40-year reunion this year. That's how old I am. <laughs> and, uh, you know, when you go to those kinds of things, the first thing out of somebody's mouth is, is wow, you haven't changed a bit. And you know good and well they are lying right through their teeth. <laughs> and in fact, if they're being honest, they would say, you've changed. You've changed. Of course we've changed. We've gotten older. Why is it that we don't think we'll change in other areas as well? You know, I get that from people. They'll say to me, Fred, you've really changed over the years. I don't know if you've had that too. I wonder how that lands with you. How does that make you feel? Is that something that makes you feel great um, or guilty? You know, often I'm tempted to say, you mean I've grown? Why, thank you. See, I believe that Jesus actually set up a spirituality that necessitates and even invites change over time, um, an evolving kind of spirituality. He, had, said he, he said all sorts of things that, that he had to teach us about, but he, we weren't ready to hear it. He actually said that. He said that the Spirit would come to guide us into all truth. And so I think that change and evolution is actually baked into Christian spirituality. But the Apostle Paul, who's one of our main characters today in this text, now that was some change. His biography might be entitled, From Isis to the Sermon on the Mount, the Apostle of Transformation. <laughs> because, wow, what a difference we see in Paul. You know, he went from someone who was literally rounding up Christians to have them killed to now someone whose words reflect the Sermon on the Mount in a much more mysterious and expansive, gracious, generous theology. He was living into the new normal, the name of this series, and as, as such is an invitation to all of us. But into what? So I'm saying that Paul crafted in the new normal and the resurrection demands and insists and crafts for us a much broader and, and expansive theology. It's an invitation, first of all, into a theology of dialogue versus dogma. See, every single cell in Paul's body would have wanted to call out and challenge the plurality of gods and idols so he could declare his monotheism over against the polytheism of Athens. Younger Paul would have done just that, as being correct for him trumped relationship and dialogue. Obsession with who's in and who's out, black and white thinking, binary thinking, dominated Paul's life. No doubt he would have waltzed right into this scenario in his religious past and challenged, corrected, and even perhaps rebuked. Paul needed in his life a newer, higher consciousness a capacity to interact with and converse with people outside of his tribe, outside of his biases, outside of his frame of reference. And Paul would become the one who describes Christian spirituality as we see through a glass dimly. He would say that 20 years after his conversion. Think about that. The 20 years into Christian spirituality, Paul says, we see through a glass dimly. Wouldn't it be great if whenever somebody thought of the church, they would say, oh, those are those people who see through a glass dimly, who know they don't have it all figured out. Yeah. 
So it's important to remember that pre-conversion Paul named Saul, he would never have said something like that. He would say, this is the clear teaching of Scripture, and if you disagree with me, you're not merely wrong, but you're a threat. You have to be turned into the other. You have to be pointed at, scapegoated, blamed for everything. You must be silenced, even Paul's previous worldview, even by death itself. How can we treat, how we treat, rather, our holy book is a matter of life and death. How we read the Bible, I will tell you, is a matter of life and death. Insisting the Bible to be something that it isn't, i.e. a manual with all the answers, I think is the fast track to weaponizing it. The resurrection changed all of that for Paul. He now has an epistemological humility, which is just a fancy way of saying he knows he doesn't know it all. And that's what makes him wise, actually. So here we have a Paul who looked for common ground, who looked for ways to affirm the humanity of each person, who understood that all of us, in the words of Paul, are God's offspring. All of us are in this together. I'm always reminded when I think of that of Martin Luther King Jr. when he was at Grace Cathedral in 1968, where he said, all of life is interrelated and we are caught in an inescapable web of mutuality, tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects us all indirectly. For some strange reason, I can never be what I ought to be until you are what you ought to be. And there's some way in which Paul understood that to some degree. And there's also, secondly, a theology of celebrating people versus demonizing. Every person around you right now, every person you interact with, from a Christian point of view, they're all royalty. You could look to the person to your right and to your left right now and say, hello, your majesty. Yeah. Kids, have your mom and dad look at you right now and say, hello, your majesty. <laughs> and then you can say that back to your mom and dad, too, because it's true. All made in the image of God, image bearers of God, called to exercise and dominion and cultivate and unearth all the potential and beauty and glory of what God has made. Because God's offspring is diverse, and therefore we see that as a gift to be celebrated, an incredible gift. As we seek to be an inclusive community, we must ask the question, who's not at the table with us right now? How do we incorporate all people with re without regard to race, class, gender, sexual orientation, or ability, or any of the other things that we use to exclude others? Because the vision of St. John the Revelator in the book of Revelation, is that every race, tongue, tribe, and nation are all a part of what God is up to in this world and gathering all to himself. And that we are intentionally and self-consciously trying to bring that about as a foretaste of that day right now. And it begins with seeing each human being primarily before they are seen as anything else as the offspring of God, to use Paul's words. Lisa Sharon Harper on a podcast with Jen Hatmaker that's entitled For the Love, Jen Hatmaker's podcast, which I suggest you listen to, it's fantastic. 
Lisa Sharon Harper said this, if you look at your neighbor, if you look at the next homeless person you meet on the street, if you look at a woman in a line to receive food stamps, or if you look at an immigrant who's now in danger of being deported, and you look for the image of God behind their eyes because it's there, and you understand that the presence that image of God means that they are called by God to exercise dominion in the world, then you can no longer see them as being created to drive your taxi or to mow your lawn or be controlled and confined in prisons away from you or in ghettos. You understand then that it's human systems that have been at war with the kingdom of God, crushing the image of God, and that's why we show up. As the late James Cone so eloquently put it, any message that is not related to the liberation of the poor in a society is not Christ's message. I think James Cones knows that our propensity as human beings is that there will always be offspring that we want to ignore, and we just simply must not. You know, for over 24 years in San Francisco, City Church has had the privilege of walking with people through a process of change walking them from, for example, the more obvious ones, things like from addiction to recovery and health, from being unhoused to housed, from psychological illness to psychological wellness, from helping someone kind of deconstruct from a more toxic theology to a more healthy spirituality, from seeing God as against them versus now seeing that God is for them and always loving them. There are all these before and after moments with people that we work with that we get to see that in the life of this church over the years, knowing someone before and knowing someone after. And sometimes they come with dramatic pictures, you know. Here's this first person when we first met them, and now they're, for example, clean and sober and employed and excited about their future. And here's the thing about that. At every step of the way, they are the image of God. Both in the first picture of addiction, for example, and in the present day of health. You have people in your life right now, and you would say to yourself, they're definitely in the first picture, first picture of whatever it is they need to come out of. And you're hoping, you're demanding, <laughs> you're wanting them to move into a second picture of health and life. Just always try to remember, they have always been and will always be, no matter where they are in the process, no matter where you are or where I am in the process, we're always the offspring of God, the image of God, designed to unleash our creative potential into the world. That's every person. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said this way. He says, he, talking about Christ, comes in the form of a beggar, of the desolate human child in ragged clothes, asking for help. He confronts you and every person that you meet. As long as there are people, Christ will walk the earth as your neighbor. Love that. We're a church that aspires to and tries to always recognize that no matter what a person believes, no matter how much agreement or disagreement, etc., all are the offspring of God. Our Muslim friends, our Jewish friends, our Hindu friends, our any other religion friends, our no religion friends, we are truly all the offspring of God, all in this together, 
and we receive each other and all of our backgrounds and religious traditions as gifts for one another. God has been that good to humanity. We also see a movement of a theology of, of affirmation versus aversion. Now, what do I mean by that? What I mean is that Paul doesn't hide his faith's faith. He visits the Areopagus, the marketplace of ideas. It's a big deal to be there. It's like being invited to Harvard, Yale, Stanford, and the University of Florida all at once. What? What, what are you laughing at? Why, why do you think it's funny that I include Harvard in that list? I don't understand. Anyway, it's so easy for Christians to move to a place like San Francisco and then cocoon. See, Paul moved toward the complexity and beauty of this world and not away from it. And I've seen so many folks move here with their faith and immediately, instead of embracing the diversity of the city and learning from this city and all that it has to teach us, there's a cocoon that we're tempted to go into to create enclaves of confirmation bias so that we, in the midst of all of this diversity that we may have never encountered before, can feel reassured that we are indeed right or safe and secure. I think Paul would counter this. He certainly did with how he lived out his faith. Paul did go to his own tribe. Don't get me wrong. He spent lots of times in synagogues, and his approach was, a, was appropriate for that. But here Paul goes out beyond his comfort zone, beyond his confirmation bias, looking for ways to connect and engage. Why? Because Paul believed that God, quote, as the text says, made the world and everything in it, and that every single person was God's offspring. So in his mind, there was no person or sphere of influence outside of God's care and concern. All of life were spheres of God's loving presence, or at least potentially so. Law, literature, medicine, education, the arts, business, government, science, quite literally anything and everything. So in his own way, Paul viewed the venerable Areopagus as just another place where the Lord of all creation had gone before him and was already present. Indeed, Paul said to the Athenians, God is not far from each one of us. God is not far from each You know what Paul could have said? Paul could have said, I have God and you don't. I have it all figured out and you don't. God is not anywhere near you. But that's not what Paul said. Paul said, God is not far from each one of us. I don't know about you, but I used to think about God as, as way out there somewhere. But God is actually, lo and behold, near, present, already here, inviting us to wake up to his presence. As I like to pray often on Sundays, may we be present to your presence already here. In order for Paul to do this and to, and to interact with all these folks, he had to have prior knowledge of his friends in Athens. He had to care enough to listen to their hopes and values and fears and dreams to understand them. This is a more expansive Paul with a more expansive theology. 
It's also a theology of expansion, as I'm saying, versus mere tribalism. Paul looks at all the idols. Athens was smothered by idols. One ancient historian called Athens a place that was one great altar, one great sacrifice. And it says that this distressed Paul is what the text says. And now that word distress is not that Paul just got mad or angry and said, I'm going to go argue with these people. It means to be ripped with contradictory feelings. It's a heart that's broken for a people who long for connection with God. And Paul believes that he's experienced that connection and understandably wants to convey it. We'll look a little bit more in the next point about how he did. But Paul looks at the altars and maybe part part of what Paul's internal self-talk is this. Now, follow me. This is Paul speaking to himself. Maybe he's saying this. I used to believe God was a God who lusted for sacrifice. I mean, I know about the teachings of Moses about sacrifice. And God is not unlike the gods of other places, that sacrifices must be made to appease divine wrath. But I was then confronted by a different prophetic voice, one that I heard in Jesus, who was echoing actually a minor tradition in the scriptures of my formation, echoing Hosea the prophet, And the psalmist who said, no, no, God is a God who desires mercy, not sacrifice. And this set me free. Paul's still speaking. I wonder if that freedom could spread to others. I need to remember my background, but I must listen and learn from theirs as well. If we are all God's offspring, their concerns and mine will overlap. I think this is part of how Paul is thinking as a model for how all of us could think. In the midst of those idols and inscription, Paul finds a way to affirm their religious inclinations in verses 22 to 28 and quotes one of these idols to an unknown God. And then he quotes from their own frame of reference when he says, in him, talking about God, we live and move and have our being. Now, where did Paul get that phrase? In him we live and move and have our being. He got that phrase from one of their poets by a poet named Aratus from his poem Phenomena, written about 270 years before this, or actually more, 270 BC in Athens. It's as if Paul was saying, there, with your poets, in your culture, 300 years ago. I see the truth of God being expressed. The Spirit of God was there before us. The sense of the divine came to expression in your poets. They told of the one who is not far from each of us. These poets knew we belonged to God, and we belong to a family. We are God's family. Can you hear the empathy in Paul. Can you hear the commonality that Paul is sharing with his inquisitors? You know, a few years ago, Newbigin House of Studies had a public conversation with CNN commentator and author Van Jones. And one of the things Van Jones said at that event was this, common pain should lead to common purpose. I love that. 
Common pain should lead to common purpose. In a group of people, a country, or a community, common pain should lead to common purpose. I think Paul would agree. We have common pain. Our hearts ache for the eternal. We have a common purpose. We want to know if God knows us, loves us, that if there is a God, we hope God will fill us with joy and life and purpose and love. New Testament scholar William Loder put it this way on his reflections on this text. He said, Paul is saying, and so in this land, the Spirit was also speaking 200, 300, 30,000, 40,000 years ago. And we need to hear what the Spirit was saying to the Aboriginal people and what the Spirit is saying through them to us. The same Spirit brooded in the Indian subcontinent in Arabia, and the same Spirit speaks in the language of the poets and the artists, the novelists and the playwrights of every age. The Spirit is free, and our calling is to rejoice and to discover, to dialogue, and to enjoy the common life of the Spirit. We need to sit down and hold hands with all who listen for the voice of the one who is not far away, who is the ground of all life and being. Friends, that is holy work, and we are called to participate with God in it. And lastly, this expansive theology was a theology of commendation versus coercion. In all of this, Paul has a story to commend. Paul's confidence for addressing a venue such as the Areopagus rested upon events, the events of the gospel, as Paul would say later, quote, were not done in a corner. So when Paul went to talk about what happened, he had something to talk about. Something did happen. In fact, that's what Paul would say. That happened. It didn't happen in a corner. You saw him alive again. I saw him alive again. All these other people out here saw him alive again. This happened. This is how Paul would speak. They're matters of historical record and open to public debate, discourse, and inquiry for all honest seekers. And in that sense, the Areopagus was the most natural and fitting of venues for Paul. And so Paul commends a story with a creator God who cannot be captured in temples made with hands or poured into molds of human images. This God is not going to limit God's self to one kind of person. This is the God of all peoples, the God not distant from any of us, the divine being present to all. I mean, here's the, that's the big idea. Paul is simply commending his story. It's almost think of his faith as like a, his hand of cards, as it were. And he's saying, I've got a story here I'd love for you to hear. I've got a story of a God who forever hallows the physical with resurrection. Does your story have that? Here's my cards. What do you think? I've got a God here who does indeed care about justice and the world made right, not just escaping it or thinking it's dirty to be avoided. What's your story got about that? Oh, okay, certain parts of it do. Awesome. Our stories do overlap a bit. I've got a story that's changed my entire perspective and life. Here are my glasses. Here, put on my glasses, try them on, put on my lens, see the lens I'm viewing the world through, and let's talk about it. Or as Jesus said, come and see. That's what Jesus would say all the time. When he would invite the disciples, he would say, come and see. It's always invitational. And look, all of this is hard work. 
The text says that after all of this, you know, some scoffed at Paul. That just means communication is happening. That means it's being heard. That's actually good. Scoffing in many ways is the first step for almost all of us. Resurrection is scary stuff. Resurrection is not easy to believe. Because if resurrection is true, and friends, we lose control of our lives, and that's scary. So some scoffed. Others, it said, said, we'll hear this again. That, too, is positive. Like a child asking, read it again. There's hope that this story could be true. Maybe that's you today. Maybe your mentality is like, you know, I'm not sure if I believe any of this, but if it was true, that'd be pretty great. That's not unusual. I'd say that's pretty normal. I've heard that a million times in 24 years here. I'll hear about this again. Tell it to me again. And then it says others believed. Not because they had it all figured out or believed perfectly, which is impossible, just so you know. I can't tell you how many people I know who says, I can't really call myself a Christian because I don't believe everything about it with 100% certainty. And I'm saying, well, either do I or does any other Christian. That's not the nature, actually, of belief, honestly understood. But they believed, simply trusted that, you know, I have lots of questions and everything else, but I think I've got a story here I can build my life on. Maybe that's you today. That's always the invitation of our church is like, here's our story. We think it's a story big enough, strong enough, complex enough, honest enough, authentic enough, realistic enough, real world enough, dirt under your nails enough to build your life on. So in the new normal, an expansive theology is crafted that values dialogue, celebrates each person and their diversity, loves, celebrates, and seeks to repair this very world, listens and learns from all of God's offspring, whether they're in their tribe or not, commends the unique story of a God who is for all of us, comes among us as Jesus, and breaks through death to resurrection. And in many ways, that describes the church that we aspire to be. And when we are like this, expect lives to be changed, cities to be renewed in a world that is driven more by hope than by fear, in a world marked more by liberation than dehumanization, in a world where, as we'll hear sung about in just a moment, in a world where we'll all be free. Amen. Come quickly, Lord Jesus, to make it so. Let us pray. Gracious God, we thank you for this extraordinary exchange that we have recorded for us in the book of Acts. We thank you for the example of Paul and how he might give us courage for all of us in our own evolving faith journeys. Be with us, give us grace, and help us even more after hearing this today to trust in your ongoing, unrelenting love for all of us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.